Good evening, everyone, and welcome to episode number 17 of the Granite Cornerstone podcast. Tonight, I am joined by the Right Worshipful Grand Historian, Right Worshipful, <clears throat> excuse me, Right Worshipful Brother Carl Olson, and we are going to be discussing uh, prominent Masons and a little bit about their history. Carl, welcome to the podcast. I think you're muted. Carl. All right, we got some technical difficulties. Everything was uh, working before, so we will try and get this fixed for everybody. Uh, but while Carl is working on that, I'll give you a little introduction into what we're going to be talking about tonight. We are going to be looking at prominent Masons in history, uh, both from a global perspective. And then we're going to get into some famous New Hampshire Masons, whether those Masons were famous for being Masons in New Hampshire or whether they were prominent Masons within the craft. There's a lot of names that you may hear tonight that are familiar to you, but you don't know the context of why. So we're gonna talk about that with some, with some of our names tonight. I cannot hear you, Carl. All right, so I can tell that my, oh, Carl is gone. We will hopefully get him back in just a minute. Carl, welcome back. Nope, still can't hear you. I don't know what is, we were just talking uh, before the show went live. So it'll be just a minute here, folks. Nothing, sir. Let's see. Oh. Does that help? I can hear you now. Okay, that's on my webcam. So let me see if I can bring you over onto my headset. Okay. And when we go on the headset, can you hear me over on the headset? I can hear you now, Carl. All right. So we may have licked the technical difficulties. Yep. Uh, your video does look frozen, but that's okay. We'll let that catch up. If you can yep. hear me, that's probably more important than seeing me. So Carl, let's talk about famous Masons. Um, one of the, the first questions that I think we should ask to frame this conversation is what, how do we define a famous Mason? Excellent question, Tim. Uh, you know, what, constitutes a famous mason or mason obviously there are two things here uh so one famous two mason uh and which it's almost a chicken and the egg kind of a, a situation where what came first were they famous first or were they a mason first or both uh and certainly there are masons that we can see throughout history that were famous 
before they were had their celebrity or as they had their celebrity. Uh, the most obvious of those being George Washington. We have the pictures of him laying cornerstones, wearing his Masonic garb, uh, and other times where he was performing in official roles uh, while still embracing his masonry. Uh, but with many other, what we would know as famous masons, they either didn't talk about their masonry or they became masons after the event. Uh, a potential example here, and we talked about the connection to New Hampshire, would be John Stark. John Stark did not become a mason until basically after the, the Revolutionary War. I didn't know that. So, so certainly uh, John Stark's connection to masonry is documented, and this was actually a question that was asked of me as uh, a historian, was uh, the, the question of, uh, was Stark, did Stark maintain any level of activity in the craft? And, uh, you know, I think that uh, looking at the records from the New Hampshire Grand Lodge and all of our Grand Lodge records, I, I don't see where he was tremendously active. So in this case, I think he would be one of those Masons that would fall into that category of had his fame was very well known, uh, but didn't necessarily practice a lot of Masonry and certainly didn't capitalize on any of his craft connections uh, to advance his career or, or even for speaking engagements and such. So, so if we look at the, the Revolutionary War, right, you know, we know a lot of the, the leaders in, in the colonies at the time were Freemasons, but, you know, we know that from a historical context, certainly. But you look at George Washington, as you mentioned, uh, somebody who we know was prominent as a Mason, laying cornerstones and performing semi-public ceremonies. But what about, you know, that other famous Freemason of the day, Ben Franklin? Franklin, uh, again, we don't see a lot of evidence necessarily of overt Freemasonry by Franklin. Uh, he was made a Mason in, uh, in Paris, or in France. I'm not sure it was exactly Paris, uh, but he was a member of the Lodge of the Seven Sisters. And now, whether or not his role as an ambassador for the United States in the early days uh, used some of those Masonic connections that he was able to make through his membership or not, we don't know. That's sort of the backside of uh, some of what he did. Uh, but as far as, you know, taking a prominent role as prominent as Washington's here in the States uh, and celebrating his fame as a Mason, uh, we, we hear far less about it. Uh, it is interesting to note, though, talking about Washington, that the major, vast majority of his generals were also Masonic brothers. Uh, now, in, yep. I mean, is there any historical context that we have access to that tells us, you know, was, were they influenced by Washington as a result of his overt Masonry? Or was this just something that so happened to, to be the case you know, in that time? Uh, it, it's really interesting because if you think about it in terms of the revolution, I mean, these were people who were essentially risking their freedoms, their fortunes, 
their lives and the lives of their families as well through the actions that they took. Uh, and, you know, is an action taken for the greater good a, a higher action than uh, good citizenry or good citizenship? Uh, so we look at Washington, for example, he was raised, well, he was born a colonist. He was born British. Yeah. Uh, and the lodge he belonged to was a British lodge. And most of the others that would have been his contemporaries were members of British lodges. So they were, in, in essence, really uh, committing treason and, and taking up arms against the government of England, of Great Britain, to fight in the Revolutionary War. Uh, so were they influenced by what were their influences? Um, you know, it's, they each obviously had their own individual motivations, but uh, Washington did tour the United States very late. It was almost like a, a last hurrah for Washington in the late 1790s, very shortly before he died. And almost all of the people that he went and visited were his generals during the Revolutionary War. And a good number of those were Masons. Uh, he came to New Hampshire to visit uh, with John Sullivan. Which is a name that we will absolutely talk about a little bit later because that's one we're, we're relatively all familiar with as we have an award here in New Hampshire named after uh, Major General John Sullivan. Certainly, absolutely. So when you look back at, you know, obviously Washington, Franklin, prominent men at the time, and it, you mentioned something earlier about Ben Franklin using his Masonic connections as he was traveling as an ambassador for the colonies uh, or the United States in its infancy. One of the most prominent aids that we received during the revolution was from France, obviously. And, you know, a lot of that came in the person of um, Lafayette. So we know Lafayette was a Mason, but what do we know about Lafayette as a Mason uh, in context? Well, one of the, the things that I think is interesting is uh, that I'm almost willing to bet that our, our podmaster today can't do the Lafayette rap from, uh, from Hamilton. So I cannot. No. We, we won't even ask you to attempt that, but uh, it, it is Lafayette is a story unto himself. Uh, and if I could put in a very brief plug for Masonicon, uh, one of the, the people that's been asked to speak at Masonicon is, is me. And uh, I will be speaking more extensively about Lafayette at Masonicon. Uh, but sort of the short, sweet version is uh, Lafayette was born into a family where he didn't have a position of growth. Uh, so, you know, there were older brothers, there were other family members who would take over uh, different aspects of the family. Uh, but through coincidences, he ended up an orphan by the age of 11. Oh, wow. And orphaned at 11, at age 11, he became the Marquis de Lafayette. And as Marquis, he received uh, about 120,000 livres a year. 
Now, if you don't have your levers to dollars uh, right there available, that's about $1.8 million a year. Man, in present what I would have done with that at 11. At 11, absolutely. So uh, what he did with it was to put to send himself to military school and to get military training. Uh, and he certainly had wealth and he had power, but he didn't have fame and glory. So he saw the opportunity to get those in the United States. So he actually came to the United States when he was 19. Oh, wow. And in one of his first engagements, he was sent to assist at the Battle of Brandywine on one of the flanks because that flank was in danger of, of faltering and failing. Uh, and there was potential battle loss there. So Washington dispatched him. Now, most of the other foreigners that had come to the the U.S. cause during the revolution just sort of took an honorary title and sat back and probably uh, drank a lot of wine. Lafayette didn't because he wanted that glory, that honor to be that warrior, to be on that battlefield. So he went to that flank and helped bolster the line, rally the troops and defend that flank. And the general that was overseeing the army on that flank was Sullivan. Oh, I did not know that. So that was the first time that they had met was actually at the Battle of Brandywine. So uh, Lafayette was taken with Washington. Washington was taken with Lafayette. They developed a relationship closer than father and son. Uh, at only 19, odds are Lafayette probably wasn't a Mason yet, but this would be an instance where he saw masonry in Washington and liked what he saw. So he decided that he would then become a Mason. Uh, and I had mentioned that we have those photos at the, some of the public, semi-public ceremonies of Washington laying cornerstones, etc. We have in the Grand Lodge of New Hampshire's collection an apron that was worn at the ceremony by a brother oh. when Lafayette laid the cornerstone for the Bunker Hill Monument. Which is, again, another prominent um, Mason, uh, Joseph Warren, is to commemorate the Battle of Bunker Hill and Joseph Warren's contributions to that battle as Grand Master of Massachusetts at the time, I believe. I believe so. Uh, so uh, you've got somebody in the person of Lafayette who came with the money, who came with the power, uh, who came to the craft. Uh, and his, uh, his son's name, two of his son's middle names, Washington, uh, Lafayette's name was long enough for two or three headstones by the time he died because they just hyphenated everything. Uh, and in fact, he's quoted as uh, saying that it wasn't his fault. He was baptized like a Spaniard with the name of every conceivable saint who might offer me more protection in battle. Oh, I love so that. He actually was Marie Joseph uh, Paul Yves Rocher Gilbert du Montier de Lafayette. That's, that's a mouthful. Indeed. Uh, so, yeah, you've got Lafayette, who uh, had all of those titles, who had all that glory. And uh, two of his son's middle names were George Washington. Wow. I mean, that does speak to a, a strong relationship. And I think, you know, when a lot of us look at masonry and why we joined, 
like you said, Carl, I think that the people around us influence us to make that decision. The people that we may know as Masons, uh, you know, maybe less so now with the prevalence of, of recruitment, I don't want to call them recruitment campaigns, but campaigns out there in the world. Um, but there are definitely influences of people who are Masons. We know them to be Masons and we assume that they are good men and want to follow in their footsteps. So I can definitely see that as a reason for Lafayette to pursue Freemasonry. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it has continued right down through time. Uh, I think that I've, I've actually been considering this since we first started talking about presenting this podcast and, uh, you know, why did we, what were we? And I think that the world was somewhat smaller back in the day. So people were more aware of their neighbors, uh, of other celebrities that, you know, you had three channels of television. Once television came along, before you had television, you had newsreels. And before you had newsreels, you had newspapers. So, uh, you know, it wasn't so hard to keep abreast of your folk heroes of celebrity. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think we learned a lot more about a lot of, about fewer people. Uh, and so we learned that these different people were Masons. Uh, so, uh, it, it's interesting that we've got all of these famous Masons who perhaps they were famous for their Masonry, perhaps in spite of it, uh, almost. Uh, but it was, I think more of kind of a chic hip thing because there weren't so many things available out there. There was no internet. There were no hundreds of channels of television. Uh, so it, it was sort of a prestige thing to be a member of the Freemasons. And uh, I think that a lot of, of men came to masonry that way because it was just what you did. And uh, a lot of the famous actors and performers from Hollywood that we hear about uh, were masons. Uh, some of them more prominent than others, uh, but it's interesting to look around at the Western heroes. Uh, that we see in the movies. Tom Mix, uh, John Wayne, Roy Rogers, Gene Autry, all prominent Masons. Well, so Carl, one thing, you know, I guess I kind of want to ask here is when you look at, you know, George Washington going out and performing public ceremonies in his apron as president and as a master Mason, you know, obviously there's a level of, of acceptance to that and obviously he's sharing that fact when you look at famous masons today many of them are keeping that to themselves we know that there are famous masons because we have records we have people who may have mentioned it offhandedly but don't promote the fact that they're masons so you know what are some examples of you know obviously the morgan affair i think had some impact on that but is there a reason that things have changed so drastically where if you look at George Washington as a Mason, we knew he was a Mason as living as a Mason. And we don't really see that widely publicized again until probably Harry Truman from our U.S. presidents. 
Yeah, I think that um, you know we we see the fame that they didn't necessarily go out into public. Uh, we do see in our historical records here in New Hampshire that uh, a number of elected officials were Freemasons, and uh, I would charge that perhaps today we don't see that sort of showing our masonry as much because of fear of perceptions. Uh, and, and I won't even say the perceptions themselves, just what we, what we're worried that people might think if people knew that we were masons. Uh, and particularly those that are more in the public eye that are are looking for public support. Uh, elected officials don't want to do anything controversial. Uh, so that may be why they're maybe not quite as vocal in their masonry or in their support of masonry is because they, they fear what that potential public backlash could be uh, just due to something that I'm sure you know, we've all discussed and we're all familiar with, and that's the mysteries that surround Freemasonry. Oh, it's secrets. It's got to be some sort of dark magic. Uh, and, you know, because we've not risen to the bait and said, oh, no, this is exactly what things are about, because we've allowed people to, you know, we've simply said, believe what you want to believe about us. We're a relatively open page. Ask us about masonry, we'll tell you about masonry. But uh, instead, uh, a lot of not truisms float around about who people, who we are, and more importantly, what people think we are. Uh, and certainly, you know, that came to light most prominently with the Morgan Affair. Uh, but you know, it, it's really interesting that because of the Morgan Affair, we had the the rise of the first third party in U.S. politics, the Anti-Masonic Party. And the Anti-Masonic Party ran candidates for president in two, or intended to run candidates for president in two consecutive elections. And their second proposed candidate uh, this was when the party really kind of fell apart because their proposed candidate actually accepted the candidacy from one of the major parties. <laughs> Oops. You know, what if you gave a party and nobody came? Uh, but curiously enough, the vice presidential candidate on that second ticket was to have been Daniel Webster. Who is now was Daniel Webster a Mason? No, he was not, but is probably, well, he's one of the statues on the lawn in the State House in Concord and was yep. probably one of the finest orators that ever came out of the state of New Hampshire. Uh, so, you know, while we do have our ties to masonry, we also, surprisingly enough, have our tie to anti-masonry. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's certainly interesting. Obviously, the Morgan Affair set off a very vast change in the landscape. And if you look at it today, I mean, again, we talk, you know, George Washington, Harry Truman. Harry Truman is a past grandmaster of, of the state of Missouri, so he was obviously a prominent Mason and 
obviously a prominent political figure. But moving beyond, you know, going into the 19, past the 1940s, as you mentioned, we have you know, a lot of Western actors. Who are some other famous Masons whose names we should know or do know that, you know, may not have advertised or may not be currently advertising their Masonic connections? Sure. Uh, well, I think probably the first one, certainly one of the ones that, that I'm familiar with uh, and familiar with the story of is Brad Paisley. Country Western guitar player, singer. Uh, and Brad Paisley is a Mason. He doesn't necessarily advertise his Masonry, but he doesn't hide from it either. And it, his the story of how he came to Masonry is very interesting. He was so inspired by the example of little Jimmy Dickens, who, who he met at the Grand Old Opry, that he said, you know, what makes you you? How did you become this way? And little Jimmy Dickens talked about the Masons. And Paisley said, sounds pretty good to me. And uh, from what I understand, there are, are brothers who have sat in lodge with him who have met him. And they say when he's in lodge, if you sit next to him, he just sticks out his hand and says, you know, you introduce yourself. He says, I, yeah, I'm Brother Brad. Uh, you know, no airs, uh, you know, not putting anything on of his celebrity. Uh, some of the others, uh, we still have some uh, elected officials. Obviously, we've got uh, Sherm Packard and Ken Weiler here in the state of New Hampshire, who are both prominent members uh, of the government, elected officials. Uh, John Lewis, uh, who we had talked briefly about, uh, really kind of came to prominence because he had a Prince Hall funeral. That And that was really surprising to me. As, you know, again, obviously an elected official, but somebody who prior to his death, you know, had made a lot of waves. People knew who he was. He was certainly a prominent member of his party. But I had no idea that John Lewis was a Freemason until, you know, when he died and I turned on his funeral and it was a full Prince Hall Masonic funeral, which is not something that, I, you know, I've even heard of being televised Exactly. Uh, you know, you you hear very little about those kind of associations and affiliations. Uh, once upon a time, early in the days of his telethon, uh, Jerry Lewis used to have the Tall Cedars of Lebanon come on. Oh. And the, the Tall Cedars of Lebanon would sing on the Jerry Lewis telethon. It was fairly late at night. You know, it wasn't during prime time because guys in triangular hats are kind of what what they were but uh he he always welcomed the tall cedars and uh and welcomed their donation and welcomed them and as i was thinking about that i actually did a quick search so forgive me if i i don't have true specifics on it but uh another brother who certainly wore his uh his philanthropy on his sleeve was Danny Thomas. All the work that he did with St. Jude's Children's Hospitals, he was a Mason, but chose to devote his efforts to the St. Jude's Children's Hospital rather than to 
some of the the Masonic options that are out there. Uh, so while we certainly would applaud his philanthropy, uh, you know, we're still going to let folks know that he was a Mason as well. Um, some of the other current folks that are out there, uh, Steve Wozniak, very quietly does his thing. Uh, you know, we should say all we want is an amount equal to what you pay in taxes every year. We'd be good. <laughs> It's a small tithe. That's all. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, for anybody that remembers uh, Perfect Strangers, which was a, a sitcom in the 80s, Bronson Pinchot is a Mason. Uh, one other that came that that I saw fairly recently is uh, John Elway, who actually completed his football career before he joined the craft. But I don't know what his influences were behind it, but John Elway decided to join Masonry. Uh, I see people have uh, have chimed in over on the, the side and mentioned some other prominent Masons, and there are a couple of them there uh, that I just would like to take a look at. I think we're probably going to maybe talk about Shaq again in a little bit, but Shaquille O'Neal was actually made a Mason on site, uh, and he was made a Mason on site by the Prince Hall Grand Lodge of Massachusetts because it was during that one year near the end of his career where he played for the Celtics. But Shaq also very prominently displayed that information and, and actually put out, I mean, he wore a ring on, on television and was, was asked about it. Well, he wore again. He, he was asked about it because the ring that Shaquille O'Neal would wear was probably the size of a stop sign. Well, yeah, I mean, there's nothing you can do about that. <laughs> but uh, but he, he was uh, a Mason. Some of the other Masons that have, have sort of gone under the radar, probably one of the greatest under the radar stories that I ever heard surrounding Freemasonry was uh, John Entwistle, who played bass for the rock band The Who. And... John Entwistle, for all of the years that he played bass for for The Who and all of the traveling and all the touring that they did, Pete Townsend didn't learn that John Entwistle was a Mason until Entwistle's funeral. Yeah, because and that's... Never mentioned the fact. And that's very surprising. I mean, how do you, I wouldn't even know how to go about that with some of the people, you know, if I'm driving around the world in the tour bus or wherever we're going. That would be, that's amazing to me. Well, yeah, evidently he never came home uh, smelling like uh, meatloaf or green beans. So never came back to the tour bus smelling like green beans. So how would you have known he was at a Masonic meeting? Uh, but, you know, obviously we would have to question exactly how active he was in his masonry, knowing how much time they spent on the road. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, uh, but was a, a member of, of our order. Uh, and to answer uh, Brother Ramsdale, yes, yeah, Steve Wozniak is, a, he's an endowed life member in the Grand Lodge, California. I don't, I, from what I understand, he's not particularly active, but he paid for a life membership. So he's still on the rolls. And uh, yes, Lyndon Johnson was in fact an entered apprentice. Uh, we have another president that we can't quite claim we can say foul tip because, uh, and we'll, we'll try, it, it can make an interesting story in the telling, but we'll try not to divulge too much. 
but Lincoln, our Abraham Lincoln, had expressed interest in joining Freemasonry, but knew that he was too busy at the time. So he had had shown interest and had expressed a potential desire to join Masonry once he returned to Illinois after he was done being president. Unfortunately, by the time he returned to Illinois, he was halfway through the third degree, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that's uh, definitely, uh, yeah, that's interesting. So, so no, never, never joined Masonry, never took the degrees. Uh, and, you know, his untimely demise put an end to that, uh, unfortunately. And, you know, and that, that makes sense. You're president of the United States. You're doing all these things. I guess you don't really have the time to, to sit there and join the, the fraternity. Um, but, you know, it's interesting that he expressed an interest. And I wonder where those influences were in, in Lincoln's life. Do we know some of the prominent Masons he may have been surrounded by in, in his uh, time? Um, well, it, it's very interesting because one of the people that we know uh, at least had met and knew Lincoln was uh, a brother from Warner named oh. Osgood. And we know of that association because uh, we have a card that says, uh, not Osgood, Ordway, I'm sorry, had the wrong name. We have a card that says Secretary of War Stanton Please see and hear Mr. Ordway, signed A. Lincoln. Uh, and we know Ordway was a member of the lodge in Warner. Actually, by then, Warner Lodge had disbanded. So we don't know exactly where he was a member, but he came back uh, evidently to, uh, to Harris Lodge once it was reformed. Oh, wow. And so we have that piece. So we know that there's a Mason for sure. Uh, you know, the uh, I see that we have somebody saying they've heard both yes and no on Lincoln's Masonry. Lincoln never did join Masonry. And, you know, there is speculation as to whether or not he did say he would be interested. Uh, you know, a, a statement that vague can be interpreted a lot of ways. Uh, but I do think it's interesting you had mentioned what you can do as president and what you can't. Uh, while Truman was out stumping for either election or re-election, uh, he was in one of the landlocked states in the middle of the country. Uh, and from his railroad car, because he was, was doing a, a whistle-stop tour, he saw a young gentleman in a Navy uniform. And he questioned what the Navy was doing in the middle of the country, hundreds of miles from saltwater. And uh, he was told by that individual that he was going to take his degree in degrees in masonry that night. And so Truman said, that's it. We're staying here tonight and attended lodge with that brother to watch him take another degree. And uh, at the door of the lodge, indicated the service secret service members members of his detail that were there with him that who were not freemasons uh were going to be staying outside 
and the uh, Secret Service agents that were Masons that were with them as part of that detail said, yeah. And Truman said, I'm safer in there with them than I am out here. So. So we have a comment from a Facebook user. Unfortunately, I can't see your name. There's something wrong with the interface coming over. But uh, it says, you've got to wonder if one of the members of Run DMC is a Freemason. In the music video for It's Tricky, uh, one of the women is wearing a Scottish Rite pill hat. So I just uh, pulled the video up on my screen here. And you're absolutely correct. Uh, that woman is wearing a Scottish Rite, one of the black and, bold, uh, black and gold caps with the double-headed eagle on it. So there are certainly Masonic references being made in a lot of media, right? We know that. Um, and it's interesting, you know, whether we know whether these people are Masons or not. And I think, you know, we talked a little bit about Prince Hall Masonry, but I think Prince Hall Masonry has a fair number of celebrity Masons uh, who we as a fraternity hold up as famous Masons of the past. But, uh, you know, is that something you wanted to discuss is, is how, what's the difference between Prince Hall and, and mainstream masonry that, uh, you know, may cause those people to, to obviously be more active in that community rather than, you know, our own. So um, without going too deep into the, the differences, because they're, that's session upon session upon session of the podcast unto itself. Uh, essentially, Prince Hall Masonry is uh, an entire system of Grand Lodges all across the country. In fact, I think even extending across large swaths of the earth uh, that is African-American Freemasonry. Uh, yeah, obviously, I don't know if they call them African Canadians and don't mean to be offensive to anyone, but uh, it, it is uh, it is black Freemasonry and uh, the traditional Grand Lodges that we hear about the mainstream Grand Lodges tend to be white Masonry uh, in the past several years, probably over the last uh, two decades or so. We have made significant strides in bridging the gap between Prince Hall Masonry and mainstream Masonry. Uh, one of the brethren who was very influential through the Congress of Grand Masters in working toward getting that acceptance was uh, one of our shortest serving Grand Masters, and that was uh, Re uh, Most Worshipful Al Burgess, who only served as Grand Master for a day before he passed away. But wow. during, during the run up to his one day while he was a deputy grandmaster, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, he did spend a lot of time talking with other brethren about uh, trying to, to get recognition for the Prince Hall Grand Lodges by some of the mainstream Grand Lodges. Uh, it's happened in most of the country. There are still a few states. I want to say we're down into the low single digits now uh, of lodges that don't recognize Prince Hall Masonry and Prince Hall Masons as Masons. They are, it is still considered a clandestine body to them. But it's very interesting because they'll come out with something that talks about black Freemasons, African-American Freemasons, uh, and they'll talk about Shaq, and they'll talk about Scottie Pippen, and they'll talk about Emmanuel Lewis. They talk a lot more about older 
ragtime era uh, Tin Pan Alley sort of performers, W.C. Handy, Nat King Cole, as being Masons. And they're more than glad to sort of hitch on to the fact that those individuals were Masons. Uh, but I think it's a little bit, I don't even have a good word for it of us uh, to, to revel in their, their accomplishments and in their fame when in fact they're, they may not even be recognized as Masons in certain jurisdictions. Uh, so hopefully we're doing even more with bridging that, that gap between our lodges. Uh, it is interesting without going too deep into it because people have called for, well, we just need to be one masonry. There should be no such thing as a grand hall, a Prince Hall Grand Lodge and a mainstream Grand Lodge. And one of the places that we've actually met with a little resistance in that is some of the Prince Hall Grand Lodges, because some of them are 150, 200 years old. And they say, you know, we can trace our masonry back to Prince Hall, back to Boston, Massachusetts, back to the late 1700s. Why should we give up our history to join with you? Why can't we both be uh, sort of equal and we'll continue to maintain our history and all of our connections and, and our roots, et cetera, et cetera, and you contain yours, but let's visit each other. Let, let's all revel in the fact that we believe the same things, that we practice the same things. Well, so speaking of uh, Black Masons, let's talk, let's go to New Hampshire and, and start talking about some prominent New Hampshire Masons and who they were and what they did. One of the ones that uh, we spoke about previously was Wentworth Cheswell. And Wentworth Cheswell was a member of the um, mainstream Grand Lodge of New Hampshire. Is that correct? He was. Uh, he was actually a member of Columbian Lodge. And I, I see another comment, and I, I can't tell you why my video is frozen, but I promise there, there really is a me out here, and he looks just like that. Uh, so uh, I've done tried a couple of things on the backside, but uh, basically it's just a discussion. Hopefully just seeing my mouth move won't uh, change the meaning of my words at all. Uh, but yes, Wentworth Cheswell was a member of uh, Corinthian Lodge Number 2. Uh, so he was a Freemason. He was master of the lodge for a time. And Hope Cheswell also is considered to be the first elected official in the United States of black descent. Yeah. And so he was a Revolutionary War veteran and elected as constable. Yes, in, in Newmarket, which is interesting. And again, you know, that's clearly a fascinating um, figure in, in history, but also a fascinating figure in New Hampshire Masonic history that I don't think I'd heard about until you mentioned him uh, in our you know, pre-call. Yeah, he uh, he actually holds a, a relatively prominent position, uh, not as prominent because he didn't have a lot of titles offices, etc., in our mainstream band lodge, but certainly he is considered uh, a key figure 
in Prince Hall masonry. Really? Prince Hall masons are very aware of him and they point to him as being one of the earlier uh, black masons that's a that they <laughs> so we talked to the, about uh, co-opting some of those African-American performers, those black performers as masons for the mainstream lodges. Well, they've sort of co-opted Wentworth Cheswell which you know we're glad to share uh as a a very prominent early black mason of whichever extraction not prince hall but uh over on on the uh the mainstream side in the grand lodge of new hampshire's records and somebody asked if he served in the grand lodge uh, i've not found evidence that he was a grand lodge officer i found no evidence that he was higher than master but I, I mean, which is still, you know, again, in the 1700s, 18, early, very early 1800s is still quite an accomplishment. Oh, absolutely. For a black man in this, in this country. Absolutely. And I'm going to look right now because I actually have a list open here on the backside. Uh, and I have, this is a list that I have of every Grand Lodge officer who has ever been a Grand Lodge officer. Oh, wow. Uh, there are about, um, 1730 some odd names on the list. So of the 1730, uh, Wentworth Chiswell is not on the list as being a past Grand Officer. Uh, so instant research conducted while you wait. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing about having the grand historian on the call. Uh, so we're back in New Hampshire now. And, and I want to talk about some of those New Hampshire Masons who have made waves within the craft without the craft, but we know them for, for any number of reasons. So the first one I want to talk about is uh, Thomas Smith Webb. For those of you who don't know, we do have a Ritual Excellence Award here in the state of New Hampshire. And that award is now named after uh, Brother Webb as of, I believe, last Grand Lodge or, or very recently, the last couple of years, we've changed the name of that award. So uh, who was Thomas Smith Webb? What, what is he known for, uh, either as a Mason or, or outside of the fraternity? So Thomas Smith Webb, uh, I know more inside the fraternity than I do outside. Uh, Thomas Smith Webb was a, a Mason, was from New Hampshire, is the one who really took Preston's work and sort of brought Preston's work to prominence here. Uh, so Thomas Preston assembled all of the lectures that he could find and said, here's how you do ritual. Here's what it's all about. Because back in the, the day, uh, the degrees, the way we see them now, probably didn't exist quite the same way. You would go through an initiation ceremony that was probably a much shorter ceremony not including histories, charges, that type of thing. 
And then when the time was right and a lecturer was traveling around, a lecturer would deliver those lectures. So not everybody knew them. There was no book because that was the days of everything from mouth to ear. So there was no book that these things came from. So you needed to hear the words from somebody who knew the words. So that's what we see is William uh, is, <laughs> and then the name goes right out the window. Uh, We're talking about Webb? Webb. You see Webb uh, sort of bringing those rituals to this area. And it's very interesting because of Webb's efforts in bringing those rituals together, bringing those lectures together, and the way that New Hampshire adopted them. New Hampshire has one of, supposedly, one of the truest rituals to the Prestonian model in the United States. So when we talk about things really haven't changed, or you see our deputy grandmaster pulling out a book from 1808 and the charge that's given to the master at our installation ceremony is the same in that book from 1808 that was published by Thomas Smith Webb as it is today. Actually, I, without trying to steal too much of, of uh, Right Worshipful Hotchkiss's Thunder, there's one word that's changed. Wow. The word subject became citizen. Wow. Probably because we were adopting from being subjects of the British Empire to being citizens of the United States. But that's the only word that has changed in that charge in 214 years so far. So, I mean, as far as, as Thomas Smith Webb's influence in the fraternity, I mean, he's right up there with, with Albert Pike's influence in the Scottish Rite. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, he certainly was, was going about and, uh, you know, in codifying those things and in delivering those messages brought a unifying force to Freemasonry and Freemasonic ritual as we know it. Uh, I would say perhaps not to quite the extent of the, uh, the Scottish Rite with Pike's work because sure. Pike said, I'm going to rewrite all the degrees. Uh, Preston didn't try to re, or Preston and or Webb didn't try to rewrite Freemasonry. They took what was already written down. They took the words that were already out there and just presented them. Uh, so, you know, certainly every bit as important as Pike, but they didn't reinvent anything. And uh, so that then leads us in our conversation from Webb to Pike uh, to Cross, yeah, so Cross is a, a logical next step. Now, the Jeremy Jeremy Lad Cross Award is is one of the highest honors that the Grand Master can bestow on uh, a Mason in the state of New Hampshire. Uh, his name is Jeremy Lad Cross. Don't be like me. I thought it was a Jeremy Lad Cross, uh, but. I know somebody who has one and is not cross-shaped. So let's talk about him. Who is he? So 
talking about Jeremy Ladd Cross, actually talking for a second about the award first, yeah. it's interesting because when the Jeremy Ladd Cross Award that's given now, that's the highest honor in New Hampshire Freemasonry, is awarded, the award that was originally presented, according to the Proceedings of Grand Lodge, called for an award to be called the Thomas Smith Webb Award. Oh, and really? they actually decided to change the name of it to the Jeremy Ladd Cross Award. So Cross sort of continued what Webb had started in terms of delivery of lectures, delivery of information. And uh, Cross, I, I have sometimes described as uh, an itinerant lecturer. He would travel from place to place, and he would be hosted in a particular area. So he might come to, say, Manchester. Well, maybe he's being hosted in Manchester by Washington Lodge. So while he was being hosted by Washington Lodge, he would probably present the lectures there. Then he might travel over to Candia or he might travel over to Raymond and he might deliver those same lectures in either Tucker Lodge or in Rockingham Lodge. And he sort of traveled around and was a guest who was received and he was given lodging and, you know, they fed him green beans and uh, usually would, would give him a little bit of money for presenting the lectures to help with his travel expenses. And then he would move on to the next place. Uh, he does figure very prominently in Rhode Island uh, masonry. He is, I believe, a past Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Rhode Island. Oh, wow. But we'll still, he started his journey with us. Uh, in Rising Sun Lodge, which was then located in Keene. And in answer to the question that comes up, the Jeremy Ladd Cross Award is given for uh, outstanding service to New Hampshire Freemasonry. Uh, so it is granted by Grand Lodge, uh, and it is their determination on who receives that award for service to New Hampshire Freemasonry. So just not to correct you, Carl, but I think Thomas Smith Webb was was made a master mason in, in Rising Sun and Keene. Okay. But I think Jeremy Ladd Cross, uh, from what I'm seeing, was made a mass, uh, master mason in St. John's Lodge. Oh, yes, you're right. I stand corrected. Or actually, I um, said corrected, but my camera froze, so you can't tell. But yeah, so, I mean, that, why is it that Jer the Jeremy Ladd Cross Award has is the mo the name for the most prominent award that can be awarded by the Grand Master. What, why was his name chosen? It doesn't really say why they decided to choose Cross over Smith Webb. It just says it was presented as being the Smith Webb Award, and by the time they got around to presenting it, they had changed the name to <laughs> Jeremy Ladd Cross uh, without a lot of explanation of exactly why they did it. Uh, but certainly uh, they were looking for somebody who was prominent to Freemasonry uh, and prominent to New Hampshire Freemasonry. And 
th that would have been cr could have been cross you know i'm sure an argument can be made for thomas smith webb as well uh but it was at a time before we had other famous freemasons from new hampshire to celebrate to name awards after that makes sense so you know we uh we we spoke about stark and said that stark may or may not have been terribly active in his masonry as he went through life uh probably better at coming up with uh mottos to put on license plates than he was at learning masonic ritual perhaps he, he was very good at that though he did do well with that uh and we certainly see that every time we walk out to the car well so stark is is certainly you know somebody that has fame obviously for coming up with live free or die as, as the state motto or coming up with that that phrase and then having it been adopted as the state motto but he's not the only major general john s that uh that served in that time period uh, and one of them again we, we've got an award named after um major general john sullivan that's awarded by the grand lodge um, or it's awarded by the lodges yes the approval of grand lodge yes we have the major general john sullivan award uh major general john sullivan comes in three colors it's given in bronze silver and now gold most recently gold they only started doing that about 30 or 40 years ago uh the major general john sullivan award can be given by the lodge the lodge makes the recommendation to grand lodge the grand master then needs to approve it uh if the grand master approves it then the award is given to that brother he is then eligible for the next color so if you received it in bronze it would be 10 years would have to pass before you could be considered uh, eligible for a major general john sullivan in silver and then another 10 years so if you ever see anybody wearing a major general john sullivan award in gold that represents three decades of service to our grand lodge i think uh the only one i think i've seen in person was roger daskals in gold yep roger had one uh we actually have one in the collection at william pitt that belonged to right worshipful donald keith from uh, bradford uh oh. we, we have his full set we have his bronze his silver and his gold oh that's great so pretty proud of that and i remember brother keith uh so that is what that award is as far as uh looking at major general john sullivan himself major general john sullivan was our first grandmaster uh he was a prominent mason this was an example that talks about a mason who was more famous than he was mason uh he you know he was better at being a civil or a revolutionary war general and had the notoriety of that uh which stood him in higher stead than uh than his masonic accomplishments at the time uh he is as i said he was our first grandmaster uh at the time that he was elected our grandmaster and when our grand lodge was formed he had yet to be a master so mm -hmm. it's interesting that they actually delayed his assumption of the office of grandmaster 
for a few months uh, after he was elected so that he could serve his time and be qualified to, as a, a master or warden of a, a subordinate lodge so that he would have the, the qualifications to serve as our grandmaster. Uh, and that may have been uh, a little bit uh, advantageous of us taking uh, taking advantage of that brother's celebrity uh, because there were other brothers who served after he did uh, who certainly were as prominent and as dedicated to the craft as he was. So, uh, you know, we, we can celebrate them as well. Uh, but it is interesting that I believe we're on about number 214, 216, maybe past grandmasters. That's it. Wow. There have only been less than 225 men who have sat in that chair in our grand lodge. But, uh, you know, just to, to do a quick callback, I had mentioned that it would take 30 years of service to receive the Major General John Sullivan in gold. Yeah. Actually, our longest serving grand officer was a grand lecturer who served as grand lecturer for 45 years. I've, you know, you mentioned that uh, previously to me, Carl, and I've already put in the recommendation that uh, Right Worshipful Brother Busby uh, maintain that that tradition and keep on going. All right. Can we get emergency medical services to uh, Right Worshipful Busby's house? Because uh, odds are he's probably in need of CPR right now. I don't even know if he's at home. He might still be at the Grand at the yeah, I, Manchester. I'm sure he probably is. But uh, I also had heard word that our Grandmaster might stick his nose in uh if he could get off into a corner where it's quiet somewhere so he might even be lurking out there somewhere if he is dave run down <laughs> so are there any other prominent new hampshire masons i mean obviously you know i'm, I'm a local nashua and i know names like hunt i know names like roby you know and those are names that feature prominently in, in uh, rising sun lodge's history and also within we have portraits of them within our lodge building. But who are some other prominent New Hampshire Masons that may have made an impact uh, that we haven't heard of because they don't have something named after them? Well, I, I think it's interesting because uh, we can we can look at that list first and say, let's look at the Masons that do have something named after them. Because yep. if you start going through pretty much any highway project in the state of New Hampshire, hmm, there's a highway over toward just north of Portsmouth, at the end of Dover, Rochester Way, called Spalding. Uh, Frederick Douglass Everett of the Everett Turnpike is a Mason, was a Mason. Uh, and, you know, a lot of our public works projects were named after prominent Masons. So you can start with some of them. Uh, some of the other brethren that have sort of slipped under the monitor are under the radar a bit. One brother that we have uh, belongs to Pulpit Rock Lodge is Brother Eddie Westfall. Now, if anybody remembers the big bad Bruins in the 70s, one of the guys that was digging those pucks out and getting them out to Oren Esposito was Eddie Westfall. He played for the Bruins for a number of years. 
another brother who operates very quietly under the radar or operated very quietly under the radar that I actually claim a personal connection to. Uh, we've all heard of the old man of the mountain. Yep. Uh, it would not surprise me at all to know that the old man of the mountain was a Mason. And I say that because I know the gentleman who maintained the old man of the mountain for years was right worshipful Niels Nielsen out of Olive Branch Lodge, which used to be in Plymouth. Uh, and he was a past district deputy, worked for the highway department. And one of his duties that he somehow picked up while working for the highway department was to take care of the old man of the mountain on an annual basis. So he would go up and he went over the face of the old man in a bosun's chair, which was basically a board tied to his butt. And uh, the first time he went over, he just went over in a bosun's chair that was tied up above him and went down and with a hoe and some other working tools, pulled some of the uh, dirt out of the cracks and, and helped to maintain the old man for years and years and years. And as a district deputy and past master, et cetera, et cetera, I wouldn't be at all surprised, but what the old man probably heard just a few words of our Masonic ritual over time. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure he was sitting up there just practicing his ritual while he was working in privacy. Yeah. And, you know, you pretty well know that you're, you're not anywhere near any Cowans or eavesdroppers. Uh, when I mean, that is, that is mouth to ear right there. Indeed. Uh, and I had mentioned that he went over the face in a bosun's chair. Well, he did that the first year and said, wow, this is great. I'm having the best time ever. Well, he tried to do it the second year and he discovered a, a force of nature that he hadn't considered before that, and that was the wind. Oh, gee, oh, and he got down just below. He was down around the chin somewhere, and the wind came up, and it blew him about seven feet off from the face of the mountain wow. and held him there. So he's in the chair, and he can't get back to the stone to get pulled up. So in years after that, there were outrigger lines that were tied off to the left and right so they could pull him back in. Uh, and in answer to uh, the question that was asked, uh, the sculptor of the Old Man of the Mountain was, in fact, uh, not quite a mason. He was more the grand architect. Yep. So, John, uh, Brother Ramsdell is is from Maine, so I'll forgive him his, his lack of knowledge on, on the Old Man of the Mountain, but that is a natural formation. Thank you very much. Uh, none of that... Uh, Mount Rushmore business up here. But Burgum was a Mason. Burgum, who did, who was the sculptor on the Old Man of the Mountain, was a Mason. On uh, Mount Rushmore, you mean? Uh, Mount Rushmore, yeah. Sorry. About I, I did not know that. Yes. Um, so, so Carl, we <laughs> you know, one last thing I wanted to bring up is, you know, People who we don't know are Masons or, or may not know fully are Masons, but, you know, is there anybody who's 
been speculated to be a Mason based on, you know, their writing or their speech or, or something that they've done that, that we can't prove. Um, there are several individuals that people talk about and say, oh, he's a Mason or he must be a Mason just because of the way that he behaves. Uh, and I would, would just start this with saying that things aren't necessarily always what they appear because we had talked about famous uh, Prince Hall Masons. And one of the names that I didn't mention who was a Prince Hall Mason was Richard Pryor. Yeah, okay. So someone who you really wouldn't think of as necessarily embracing Masonic ideals. No, uh, not so much. <laughs> was was in fact a mason uh but some of the some of the folks that are rumored there are a lot of folks that are rumored to be masons uh i've seen people say that uh barack obama was a mason and that's based largely he had just shaken somebody's hand very warmly and uh because of the the photograph and the angle of the photograph I've seen that yep they say oh no that's secrets that are being passed there uh you know interesting that he happened to be shaking hands with a woman in the photo but uh that's another issue for another podcast uh everybody wants sean connery to be a mason and sean connery is not a mason as i mean that would be a coup though if we could get him right oh as much as we like strapping manly scottish men uh no uh sean connery not part of the craft uh so you know i mean i can kind of bounce back and forth with this and say not a mason is a mason not a mason is a mason so in in counterpoint to that not a mason uh harlan sanders and dave thomas hmm for those that don't recognize the name harlan sanders is was more better known by by rank he was known as colonel sanders and dave thomas became very famous because he put his daughter on the logo of his fast food restaurant called wendy's so they were both masons very quietly we don't hear a lot about it uh as far as other Masons, not a Masons, uh, in terms of writing, obviously one of the the first ones that you've got to think of, and this can be our New Hampshire tie-in and might even be a good way to wrap this all in a bow, would be Dan Brown. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah. I mean, that's absolutely a, a good mention. Dan Brown, not a Mason, but uh, did extensive research. Oh, Nicolas Cage, not a Mason bad movies but not a mason or entertaining movies yeah, uh, they're not, those i love those movies come on yeah it's it's brain candy uh but um dan brown did extensive research and was on an interview show he was on with um brian gumble i think was on with one of the morning interviewers and uh, was asked 
So the it, it was funny because the guy was almost mocking in his tone. He said, so you're telling me Masons are good? And this was right after, I don't can't not sure whether it was uh, Angels and Demons or, or Lost Symbol came out. And Dan Brown said, this is an organization where men from all walks of life, from all different political standpoints, from all different religions, can assemble peaceably in the same room, discuss whatever issues they have to discuss, and hold a meeting in harmony with each other. Shake each other's hands warmly on arrival and on departure. And anybody who comes to visit them who believes the same things that they do, that's also a Mason, is welcome in their, their space. And these are people who can get along, who do get along. And if that is bad and they aren't setting an example that we all should be looking up to, then we're the ones doing something wrong. Yeah. And, that, you know, that's a beautiful sentiment. I think Dan Brown is probably responsible for a lot of people finding the fraternity. You know, I think especially up here in the Northeast, um, his books were coming out at around the same time that we were starting to adopt the open house program. Mm -hmm. Same with, you know, the national treasure movies. I know that, you know, those, I don't want to say national treasure is the reason I, I walked into a lodge, but it certainly sparked an interest. And, you know, those are, those are interesting conversations. And those last comments, I think ring true very solidly with me. I've been to lodges all around the world. I've been to lodges in Europe. I've been to lodges in the Caribbean. I've been to lodges, you know, across the country. And every single time I've been treated as, as a member of the family, you know, I, I've gotten the, the secret tours I've gotten, you know, uh, I, I was in the Bahamas and a brother spent, I would think uh, about two hours with me while he was technically on the clock just to show me around uh, his lodge. Um, and, uh, you know, Dan Brown nailed it. I think he, he definitely understands what we're all about, whether he's a member or not. And, you know, this just scratches the surface of who famous Masons were, who they weren't. Uh, you know, we didn't go into the Old West, Turkey Creek Jack Johnson, who's seen wearing a Masonic square and compasses when he's depicted in the movie Tombstone, was actually a Mason. Uh, documented, documented, documentable fact. Uh, yeah, there was speculation about Billy the Kid uh, and some of the other Western stars. And, you know, for everybody that we know as a Mason, there are probably five to ten more that we aren't sure about. We can't prove it. We don't have the records. Uh, you know, usually for me, my benchmark is if you can't give me a name and lodge number, then I'm going to say I can't say for sure that he is a Mason. Uh but you know there this is a dis discussion that could go on for hours and hours and you know this is one of the discussions after the after meeting no and I, you know what carl i i think that you were right this is a, a that was a good note to end it on and i think that 
you know, we, we definitely have more that we can talk about with you as regards to New Hampshire Masonic history. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Right Worshipful Brother Olson is a font of Masonic knowledge, whether it's local history or otherwise. So um, we appreciate you joining us this evening, Carl. We appreciate you taking time out of your day to uh, enlighten us about some prominent Masons and, and prominent New Hampshire Masons, especially. My pleasure, Tim. It, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that you, you got to see sort of the still painting. Uh, and, you know, if you want to think about that last uh, famous Mason, uh, I'll throw a name out. It's even a New Hampshire name. What about Ryan Flynn? Yeah, I mean, you know, it. You're, yeah, we we don't contemporary famous Masons, people who are famous within the fraternity. You know, I was telling that I don't remember who I was talking. Oh, I was talking to a brother. We were driving up to Lancaster for a Scottish Rite degree uh, uh, Friday night, and he was a guy from Texas. Didn't you know? Had heard the name Ryan. Had, had met Ryan, I believe, but didn't know everything. And, and you know, famous Masons, famous people within this fraternity, people who are having a major impact within this fraternity, are still being being made Masons every single day. And I think Ryan is a great example. And join uh, join Brother Olson at his talk at Masonic Con. I will be uh, emceeing the festive board uh, that night. Uh, Ryan just asked me to do that. So uh, you'll see us both there. And again, there's going to be a lot of good conversations and topics there. So uh, hopefully we'll see at Masonic Con. I believe the last day to reserve the festive board uh, was yeah, Friday. But uh, definitely get tickets to the main event. Carl, have a good night. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for hosting me, Tim. And thank you, everybody, for watching. We'll be back uh, on May, oh, it looks like May 1st. And if you have any comments or questions, please feel free to email us at granitecornerstone at nhgrandlodge.org. Thank you, everybody, and have a great night.